Hello and welcome to Euractiv's AgriFood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And I'm Natasha Fitt. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's AgriFood team. So uh, this week uh, started with uh, a new proposal from uh, the Portuguese presidency when it comes to uh, one of the thorniest aspects of the common agricultural policy. So mm-hmm. the, the main EU farming subsidies program uh, that is currently under discussion between uh, the European Council and the European Parliament. So they, the two lawmakers are stuck in the moment on uh, the green architecture of the new uh, common agricultural policy reform. And um, uh, the Portuguese presidency wants, in a bid to break this deadlock, um, they presented a new proposal uh, on eco-scheme. So uh, eco-scheme, uh, we're talking about the main bonds of contention, of course, but also we're talking about the most important aspect uh, when it comes to the greening of uh, um, the EU farming subsidies program. So mm-hmm. the you remember, Natasha, the European Parliament uh, in October voted for ring fencing, so put mm-hmm. uh, a limit in the, in the budget spent. I do uh, remember. Feels to, like a long time ago, actually. Long time ago, yeah, actually. <laughs> a lot has happened since. <laughs> yeah. and, and the ring fencing of the European, the European Parliament was at 30% of the budget um, mm. in the first pillar. So the um, the pillar of the cap, they voted to the direct payments to farmers. Uh, the council position is um, at um, 20%. Mm-hmm. So 20%. So the got to find a compromise somewhere. Someone has to move somewhere basically. Basically, yes. Uh mm-hmm. I mean we knew that uh from the beginning actually. Yeah. Um you know the final figure has to lay somewhere in in between. The Portuguese presidency is basically proposing uh to gradu- gradually reach 25% in 2025 starting with a ring fencing of 22%. This is the the proposal um, in order to you know meet alpha weight somehow and kind of move progressively up so it's not as maybe not as intense. Yeah, although still I heard from some uh, member state uh, representative um, that uh, they're not entirely. I mean, there are some member states that are not in favor of um, you know meeting the parliament alpha way no they oh, really mm. yeah they still they still a bit uh, they want the, the portuguese presidency uh to be stick with the mandate the original mandate of uh, 20% and mm-hmm. this is going to be uh, discussed i mean this proposal uh will be of course proposed by the portuguese presidency to the other eu agricultural minister in the next agrifish council that will take place uh on monday on monday well, depends when you're listening to this actually yeah <laughs> um, on the 20th <laughs> yeah we have a lot of uh, listenings on monday mysteriously yeah uh no of course i mean listeners want to start their week properly listening to our dulcet tones is there a better way to start the week i'm not sure i'm not sure either <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an informal Agrifish Council because it's not in presence and uh, it will be uh, web streamed, let's say. 
there are also other aspects that will be attached. Um, not only the, the cap reform package uh, with the new proposal on eco scheme, but also uh, the market situation, um, also considering uh, future challenges, of course, and um, and also the issue of trade um, is high on the agenda, as well the um, EU strategy on animal welfare. What are they not talking about? Yeah. Very broad. <laughs> And food labeling, of course. Oh, there's another one. <laughs> but Tash, there, there are also other aspects. We, we spoke mm. with, we spoke to Norbert Linz, the chair of the Agriculture Committee um, mm-hmm. of the European Parliament last week, and he basically um, described or at least outlined uh, other um, thorny issue uh, mm-hmm. between the Parliament and the Council. Of which there are several still sticking points to be discussed. But today we're more interested in one. Yes, exactly. I took the words out of my mouth. Well, one of them that is uh, one of these thorny issues is this issue of the definition of an active farmer and what it means to be a farmer. And this, you know, has a has a large effect on the way that the the subsidies are kind of doled out. But I won't go on about it because actually we have our guest today here um, to talk about this issue. So today we have with us Morgan Ozi, who is um, a member of the European Coordination Via Campesina, who works uh, a farmers association that works uh, to support small farmers. And Morgan's also a farmer herself. So we spoke to her to hear a little bit more about this issue of what it means to be an active farmer. Thanks very much for being with us today. Um, so I'm sure what you know is that, um, you know, one of the main kind of sticking points of these cap negotiations is on the definition of what it means to be an active farmer. So maybe in, in your words, you could explain to us what you think it means to be an active farmer for you. Well, for, for us, it's very simple. Uh, genuine farmers are the people who are doing the work on the farm. So there are the people with an agricultural activity who are not employees and whose main source of revenue comes from this agricultural activity. So it's quite basic. Uh, for us, the farmer are the people driving the tractor, uh, planting uh, the seeds and doing the real actual agricultural activity. I will also ask you, uh, want to ask you, how important is this uh, definition uh, of farmer for directing uh, the common agricultural policy funds and also for future decisions on uh, supporting uh, small farmers? Actually, the definition of genuine farmer is very important because we all know that uh, right now, most of the cap payment go to Big, the biggest farms. And actually, in some of these farms, it's only nominal farmers or farmers by name only, um, meaning that uh, in some of these farms, there are people uh, employing other companies who do the actual work on the fields. And for us, this is not really farmers, meaning that uh, in order to be a farmer, you have to be to do the the, the actual work and not only uh, call for an agricultural company to say, okay, can you go and do the harvest on the farm? So, of course, in many farms, uh, for some specific works, you can ask for another company to do it. And that's, that's okay. There's no problem for that. But we know that, um, for example, sometimes in arable crops, 
some people can uh, have the control of uh, hundreds of hectares, never go actually on their field, but ask other companies to do the work. And these people in the current cap, uh, they do receive uh, the subsidies. And we think that uh, it's not normal. And we would like um, the actual real farmers, genuine farmers to receive the, the payments. And on the other side of the scope, um, we see that many small scale family farmers don't receive any cap payment. For example, in the vegetable sector, many farmers have very small farms. And as the cap payment are based on uh, hectares, they don't receive anything or very, very little. So we believe that cap payments should be much more uh, oriented on employment created uh, by and for the farmers. Morgan, just picking up on something you said there about you know money going to genuine small farmers and uh, the cap payments being redirected towards small farmers. I'm I'm curious. I know you said that you um you were farming on a very small um farm, 1.3 hectares, I think you said. Um, f- for you, what what does it mean to be a small farmer? I mean, it kind of differs in in, in different countries. And uh, you know, what what for you is kind of like the cutoff of like hectares? How should we go about? You know, when we talk about small farmers, what do we mean? Yes, first I want to say that the vast majority of EU farms are very small. Actually, more than half of EU farms are below five hectares, and 90% of EU farms are below 30 hectares. So really, we speak about the vast majority of, of uh, European farms. It's not only a small minority, you know, it's... it's uh, and, uh, and small farms, I won't tell you, okay, um, a small farm is uh, below uh, 20 hectares or below 100 hectares, because of course it depends a lot on the production. In arable crops, it can't be the same uh, as in, uh, in, uh, in vegetables, of course, because if you, if you already have a farm with uh, 50 hectares of vegetables, it's already very, it's already quite big while uh, 50 hectares of arable crop would be very small. So it really depends on the production. Uh, yet in every production, uh, we have da- quite clear data which uh, show uh, what is a small-scale family farm. It's, it's very much about the fact that uh, you can have employees on the, the vast majority of uh, agricultural workers actually work in family farms and don't work uh, in uh, in factory farms or in uh, huge farms. Um, but uh, it has to be that uh, really uh, your farm is linked very much linked with the community and the people around. And uh, lastly, Morgan, just uh, I mean, we hosted um, one of the negotiators in our last episode, the Agriculture Com- Committee Chair. Um, Norbert Linz, he said that they're almost there in terms of uh, reaching an agreement on the definition of farmer. So I would like to ask you, um, are you, let's say, hopeful for the outcome of uh, this definition in uh, the Common Agricultural Policy talks? I mean, what are your expectations? Are you confident enough? We, we would like two things to be included. Um, we, we as ECVC, we believe that the owners of uh, factory farms or farms in the form of limited companies that occupied vast areas of land 
they should not be considered as genuine farmers, but they should be considered as industrialists and not benefit from agricultural support from, uh, from CAP. On the other side, small-scale farms should be specifically recognized um, as being employment providers and as having added value, so they should benefit from specific public uh, support. So that would be the two things that we, that we would really add to the definition. Another thing is that we believe that it's not enough to define young farmers because there are also people who are over 40 years old and want to start in agriculture. And we think that this is great and these people should be supported as well. So we believe that there should be a new definition for new farmers over 40 years old uh, who could benefit from support from the CAP in order to start a new activity in agriculture. What has happened this week, Natasha? Well, this week's actually been, there's been quite a ruckus, to quote your favourite. I know, I don't use the word lightly because it's your favourite word, but I would say this qualifies as a ruckus. What do you think? Would, would it, you agree? It is, definitely. It I, is. I, I'm, I'm one of the most... Um, uh, important expert on ruckuses. I'm. Mm-hmm. I can this is say ruckus that level. It's, it's a proper. Yeah, it's a proper, proper ruckus. It's a proper ruckus. <laughs> what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this clash that we saw this week um, between the EU Farmers uh, Association, Kajeka, and a number of farmers, actually, um, between them and the EU Agricultural Commissioner, Janusz Wojciechowski. So basically, um, the commissioner, he posted a series of tweets this week um, criticizing industrial farming. Um, and so he was talking about intensive and industrial methods of animal husbandry. Um, and he was saying that, you know, people that don't defend these these methods uh, don't defend rural areas and don't defend farmers. He was saying this isn't these methods are not done by farmers. He was talking a lot about you know what it means to be an intensive farmer and you know really clearly stating his position on this, um, which was met I would say probably fairly predictably with uh, some some you know some, some bad feelings from the farmers who said basically they feel unrepresented by the agricultural commissioner. Um, so yeah, it's really provoked this intense debate. We saw a lot of it sparked a, quite a quite a backlash online. Um, but at the same time, we also had people saying that you know that, that they really applauded the commissioner for coming out and saying this that that this needed to be said that um, you know a lot a lot of those in the kind of environmental quarter um, saying that yes, he should take a stance against industrial agriculture. So there's been quite a divide in the agricultural community this week over these tweets over the farming sector who feel unrepresented by uh, by their own agricultural commissioner and by those um, you know in the environment. Which is is a strong allegation. Definitely, definitely, it's um, it's a very strong statement for farmers is to come out and say, you know, we don't feel supported by our own commissioner, um, you know, and, and really don't feel like they have his backing. It's also true that um, I mean, traditionally, the DG Agri uh, is a bit, you know considered uh, doing the interests of uh, farmers, no. Uh, mm-hmm. Because they basically their main kind clients. Of in the name. Yeah, <laughs> but um, at the same time, I, I always thought that um, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's not a matter of representation, no, because otherwise, uh, you know, I mean, th- th- we're basically uh, going in the same direction. I mean, it's representing not farmers, but actually 
the College of Commissioners, no? The European Commission. Sure. You know, there's a difference between representing interests and trying to uh, raise the issues of uh, of uh, a certain sector, a certain category, no? In in mm-hmm. a in a certain toll. Since the same thing, but actually, uh, you know, it's I, not I, quite. Yeah, I don't yeah. quite because I don't see the Agriculture Commission as uh, the top lobbyist of farmers in Europe, no? And mm. But I also understand the... The backlash. You yeah, yeah the, the, the allegations and also the, mm. the reasoning of uh, the EU Farmers Association after the series of tweets that mm. you mentioned uh, before. Uh, and also, I mean, not only the tweets, but even uh, last week, I remember during the hearing in... Um, the joint agri and petition committee. Mm. Uh, I was quite uh, vocal against intensive livestock farming. Mm. And in favor of small, small farmers, small scale farmers. It seems they kind, uh, kind of made up. He was invited at this um, uh, conference. Well, I think he was invited to this conference before. Before, yeah. Before this part. So I'm not sure it was a, a makeup invitation. But yeah. <laughs> but it seems from from tweets uh, after he intervened in this assembly uh, that uh, at least they they see positively at the um, next exchanges. Let's say they managed to find some common ground. Hopefully, they'll see a bit more eye to eye. And lastly, uh, this week, the um, the soft drinks company PepsiCo announced their support for regenerative agricultural farming, which it, it sounds pretty interesting, sounds kind of innovative. And uh, we took the opportunity to speak to uh, David Wilkinson from PepsiCo about what this entails and what uh, PepsiCo is trying to achieve with this. Hi, everybody. So my name is David Wilkinson. I head up agricultural procurement for our um, European procurement team. So, um, so PepsiCo announced this new uh, positive agriculture ambition this week. And um, perhaps you could briefly outline this for us. What does this entail? Um, what What are you aiming to achieve through this program? First thing to say is is um, Pepsi. We understand that you know we're a business built on agriculture, with with really crops at the heart of our our product portfolio, and we have you know a unique sourcing model where we work closely with farmers in the field. And in many cases, you know, we've got relationships with growers for um, going back two or, th- or three generations. Um, what the new announcement is, is, is we're, we're committing to do even more to grow our crops and our ingredients in a way that really revitalizes the earth and strengthens farming. And this is, um, this is the, 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 the drive and the intent behind our positive agriculture program. And by 2030, what we want to do, and this is a global ambition, is spread the adoption of regenerative agricultural practices across 7 million acres, sustainably source all of our key ingredients such as seasonings, and then also improve the livelihoods and communities of our, of our farming um, stakeholders. And we want to support more than uh, a million people in our agricultural supply chains. And you mentioned there um, that, you know, it will be all the crops that you guys source. What crops exactly are you are you talking about here? What kind of crops does this involve? Right. So the, the, our key crops include potatoes, oats, corn, um, and we also have what we call um, indirect crops, sunflowers, rapeseeds um, that are processed into our cooking oils, 
sugar beet, and of course we we source a lot of raw milk in in Russia and Ukraine. And um, getting into a bit of the nitty gritty of regenerative agriculture here, so the crops you all mentioned there are annual crops, but the core of regenerative agriculture is to use more perennial crops, crops that don't require kind of annual tilling um, to help regenerate the soil. So I'm wondering, is this program also looking to kind of branch out into these kind of crops as well, kind of support outside of these core crops that you spoke about? It's a great question. And and, and clearly the whole regenerative agriculture concept is is less around one individual crop but much more around the the system and the and the earth that supports the whole of of the crop rotations so what we're looking to do is 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 partner with with our farmers and figure out the very best way of of managing the soil that grows our crops and that might be one year potatoes one year out with a different cover crop and and taking a much more holistic view of instead of looking at one single crop for a single season, looking at the whole of the rotation. And with that, I think we, you know, we have the opportunity to broaden our perspective to actually look at you know, other a, a broader and different crops. So I'm reading a bit of uh, figures about the project, uh, 7 million hectares, 3 million tons of uh, um, GAG and, and, and uh, also uh, 250,000 people involved. There's a lot of numbers involved here, but there are not numbers on how much Pepsi is looking to invest in, in this program. I mean, how, again, how much money is Pepsi investing uh, the, the whole um, initiative is, is part of a, a, a very broad scope. Um, so I'm not here to talk about specific numbers of what, what is PepsiCo's investment in this. What I'm really um, excited about and what I'm able to talk about is some of the practices and some of the activities that we will be engaging with, with our farmers, that will support this whole regenerative concept. I know people talk about investing for sustainability. Um, that may be the case. Our ambition, however, is, is there are things that make good sense and good financial sense that we can all be doing if we organize uh, in better ways, if we share best practices differently, and if we inspire our farmers to, to approach the way they grow their crops differently. We think there's a way that is, is it's a complementary win-win in all of this. Yeah, uh, there's another question. And you're, of course, aware of, uh, of the recent uh, green push of uh, the European Union on greening the food system from, from farm to fork. And there's much talk of how to measure or assess the agricultural footprint of products. Uh, so, I mean, so far it's been a tough task as there are a lot of elements to take into account, emissions, uh, packaging, uh, impact on uh, on deforestation, for instance, uh, and at the same time, it's difficult to communicate whatever assessment has been done to consumers. So my question, my questions are: What should I mean? Which criteria should we take into account when defining the agricultural footprint, according to you? And and uh, what tool do we have to communicate this to consumers? Is, for instance, an eco label feasible? I'm not really qualified to talk about the best way to communicate with consumers. For me, the most important thing is to partner with like-minded companies, um, universities, research establishments to really understand how to quantify and um, codify some of these practices and understand some of the positive impacts 
that we're making. We know um, today, we know there's, there's lots of good things that can be done in terms of crop rotations, cover crops, and, and we, we shouldn't be um, stopping our, our desire to actually implement more of these practices whilst we, we wait to try to understand every single metric associated with doing what we know to be good. We're, we're really looking forward to working with a broad range of other interested stakeholders um, to actually help define some mutual industry codes that actually ensures that we're all doing the right things and we all fully understand the, the, the positive impacts of what we've done. And I just wanted to probe a little bit more on kind of how how exactly you're kind of supporting farmers in this transition, because often in a conversion from, say, conventional or organic agriculture to regenerative agriculture, um, this transition doesn't happen overnight. You know, crops can maybe fail in the meantime. And, and this transition is quite a big hurdle, um, you know, as systems and practices adapt. And I'm wondering, you know, how PepsiCo um, proposed to kind of support farmers through this transition, you know, um, some people have been talking about offering kind of uh, a wage regardless if the crop failed in the couple of, first couple of years, for example. Um, regenerative agriculture is quite a new area. So there's a risk as well for these farmers. So I'm wondering, you know, how, how you're proposing to kind of support these farmers through this transition. We've been working with, with farmers for a long time now. And as part of working with, with our farmers, we, we've, we've got a very good understanding of crop data. We, we, you know, we've, been, we've been recording, take for example, our potato crop. We've been recording um, um, every field that we grow potatoes. We have very clear metrics and understanding of, of, of what practices we, we um, performed, what was the result in terms of yield and, 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 and quality, what was good, what was less good. So we would actually be looking to use this data, share this data and, and work with all of the farmers individually to design a path that makes sense for both of us to follow. And it would not be a shot in the dark. Um, it would be, you know, we, we think we can make some very wise, planful choices based on the data and the algorithms that, that we have um, you know, across our crop intelligence. And for sure, we would make sure that that we have um, the right contracts in place for sourcing the raw materials. We have a long history of implementing innovative and new agricultural practices across our farms. And we have evidence that, that when something goes wrong, that we make sure that that, that the farmer is, is, is looked after. So, you know, we, we, we have these um, experiences to fall back on. But as I said, is we think with, with the amount of data that we're now capturing and, and the ability to be able to share this data across all of our farmers, this becomes less of a risk and less of a, a gamble. We're, we're using data to actually replace some of the gut feel and some of the, some of the other decision-making criteria that we used in the past. So that's all from us this week. And this week, the AgriFood podcast was produced like every week by Euroactive's AgriFood news team. That's Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote with the support of Euroactive's podcast producer, Evi Kiori. You can also find this podcast on all popular streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Spotify and Stitcher. And also be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Gerardo Fortuna, thanks for listening and see you next week.